chapter 3, verse 19. We're on part 3 of our series on repentance. And if you're still talking, please repent. <laughs> part 3, Acts chapter 3, verse 19. I'm going to thank God for the word and ask him to bless our time together here, and then we're going to jump right in. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for Acts chapter 3, verse 19, and the call to repentance. We pray, Lord, that everything we do and say here would be according to your will and your heart for us this morning. Holy Spirit, continue to move in this place. Cleanse our hearts and open our ears and our minds so that the word could get in and through all of those barriers right into our spirits, Lord, that we could live tomorrow what we learned today. That's the beauty of your word. It changes us from the inside out. So Holy Spirit, get it in us and get it through us. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter three, verse 19, repent therefore and be converted, a change, that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. We've noted in other series that we need refreshing, amen? How many, how many could use a refreshing? Thank God spring is coming, one more snowstorm, and I don't know what, what I'm going on a slow boat to Tahiti, and I'm not coming back. But thank God, the, the, I said to Giovanna when we got on the altar this morning, the doors are open, I, it smells like spring in here. Do you love that smell? That, amen, anybody can still smell? You're looking at Anybody smell? <laughs> you know, and you, you smell that. And what does that suggest? That a change is coming, amen? Winter, the dormancy. My wife can already see the green buds. She's like, she can see into the future. She sees the trees blossoming. <laughs> and, and that change is coming. And we all need refreshing and we all need change. And that's what repentance is about. We said that repentance has been at the heart of the gospel message since the beginning. John the Baptist, repent, therefore. Boy, the kingdom of God is here. Jesus, repent. The kingdom of God is here. Peter preaches his, you know, one of his first sermons there, and, and it's always about repentance, and he called the people to repent and come into the kingdom of God. Repentance has been the message of the gospel since its inception. We looked at that Greek word that the New Testament translates as repent or repentance, and it's that Greek word metanoia, and it means a change from former thoughts. So we used to think one way, and now we think a different way. It's a change of heart, a change of mind. How many can just say, you know, without tooting your own horn, that since you've come to Christ, you're a changed person? Anyone? Most people, amen. The rest of you, maybe this morning will be your day, you know. But uh, God does change us from the inside out. And metanoia is about change. And it, it's exactly what repentance means. Repentance is both turning away from sin but turning toward God. How many know you can turn away from sin and bad habits and fill it up with other sin and bad habits? Do you ever do that? It's like I stopped doing this and then I started doing that. Well, I quit doing that. Now I got free time and I got in trouble. The things that we turn away from, we've got to fill with God. You know, we talk about that God-shaped hole in all of our hearts. You know, if we try and fill it with anything else, we're not going to be filled. So it's turning from sin, and it's turning towards God. And that's what metanoia, that's what repentance is. The question became for believers is, what do believers need to repent of? Because we noted that, you know what, we still sin. Anybody have a sinless week this week? I'm not raising my hand. 
No, we all still sin, and so we all have to repent. Amen. And somebody asks you, what's that pastor like over there at Full Gospel Center? Just say, he's a sinner. <laughs> and we sin, and so we have to repent. But what do we need to repent of? And we said to answer that question accurately, we're going to look at what Jesus said to the churches in the book of Revelation. Five out of the seven churches Jesus spoke to, he called to repentance. He told them to repent, to change their mind, to change their heart, to change their way of thought, and, and to completely turn around five out of seven. The last time we were in this series, we looked at the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, 1 through 7, and the issue that Jesus had with them was with that they left their first love. And you know what? This is an easy thing to do. Somehow, some way, if you don't maintenance love, it has a way of cooling off. You know, it's like you're married, and you're married for a long time, and the sizzle fizzles. You're even too tired even to laugh at that. <laughs> Kim and I have been married 30 years. Relationships take work to keep, uh, you know, your love alive for each other, amen? And that's something that we have to do with Jesus as well. Because we can get so used to him, so comfortable with him like we do with our spouses that our love for him grows cold. And he said, I got an issue with you guys. You've left your first love. His, his instruction to them was remember from where you've fallen, let the nostalgia of our love relationship and how everything was great in your life when you were head over heels in love with Jesus. Let the remembrance of that make you run back to him, then repent and redo your first works. So it's remember, repent, and redo. Now, we're going to look at the next church that Jesus calls to repentance here, and he skips over Smyrna. And the reason he does is because Smyrna was the persecuted church. They were being martyred. They were faithful unto death, and he has no correction for them. He has nothing to say to them except keep doing what you're doing, hold fast, but no correction. So we skip over Smyrna, and we go to Pergamum or Pergamos, and... Pergamos is addressed in Revelation chapter 2, 12 through 17, and I'm going to read you what Jesus says to the church of Pergamos. Listen, he says this in Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, these things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, that's Jesus, he's the word, the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. He says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Verse 14, but I have a few things against you, because you have those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, to commit sexual immorality. Thus, you also have those who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which I hate. Remember or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And to him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And I will give him, listen, a white stone and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Powerful stuff Jesus says here. And we look at him addressing this church. Uh, while Ephesus was the apostles' church that lost its first love, Pergamos is described as the compromised or the compromising church. 
And we need to talk about compromise this morning. Say compromise. What is compromise? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Here's a good definition. In its purest sense, in its simplest form, compromise is an agreement made in a dispute that where each side makes concessions in an attempt to find common ground. So there's a dispute. Each side has to budge a little bit, make concessions. Why? So they can find common ground. In reality, what many bills compromise involves only one side making concessions and lowering their desirable standards to have an agreement. Have you ever been in a situation where you were going to make a compromise and you were the only one that compromised? You see, all the married people are just glaring at me right now. In any relationship where everyone has to get their way every time, all the time, that's not a tolerable relationship. So when we look at compromise here, we find that it's both sides making concessions. And we're going to see as it plays out, especially in the spiritual realm, that's not the case. Uh, is compromise always a bad thing? No, it's not. In fact, if you have a successful marriage, if you have healthy friendships, if you have uh, successful business partnerships, you know that compromise is, is necessary sometimes. Two people can't have their way at the same time. It gets so quiet right now. And like I said, you know, if you're in a relationship where one person gets their way and, you, and there's no, that's not compromise, that's tyranny. And so compromise is not always a bad thing. If you're going to, I mean, if you have a friendship with someone, there's times where you have to, you know, broker agreements and come to, have you ever had a friend that, you know, you could only be with them if you were doing what they wanted to do? I remember I had friends in high school that I think back now, what, they were bad friends, Tony. I wish I didn't even hang out with them. I'm going to delete them on Facebook tomorrow, I think. <laughs> But it's like, you know, if they were doing something, then you could tag along and you could help them do, but hey, you want to do this? Ah, no. And they just blow you off. That's not compromise. That's not a healthy friendship. That's not a healthy marriage or business partnership. So compromise is not always a bad thing. When is compromise a bad thing? Well, that's a great question. Here's the answer. When we're willing to bend spiritual truth or our moral integrity to create a false sense of unity with people who do not share our values. Now, if you're not taking notes today, you're not going to remember that and you're missing out because you need to remember what I just said. I'm going to try and say it again. <laughs> when we willingly bend spiritual truth or our moral integrity to create a false sense of unity uh, with those who do not share our values, that is when compromise is bad. And this is exactly what the world tries to trick the Christian into doing, to compromise spiritual truth, to, you know, just entertain a little bit of drunkenness, a little bit of immorality, a little bit of pornography, a little bit of stealing, cheating, lying, abortion, idolatry, and just, you know, move to the center a little bit so that we can be friends. And you see, there's some things as Christians we can't compromise on. Now, the things we can compromise on, we should, amen, because we should consider others better than ourselves. And we should not flaunt our liberty that we would make other people stumble. But there's certain things we can't compromise on. I can't compromise on adultery. I can't compromise on fornication. I can't compromise on abortion. I can't. I still love you. I still pray for you. I'll still smile at you. But I'm not going to compromise that. 
Compromise is destructive to the Christian when we bend our values, when we bend our integrity. Why? Because we're trying to create this false sense of unity with people that don't share our values, and we really can't be unified with people who don't share our values. We can love them, we can pray for them, we can be a light to them, but we can't compromise to make them happy. And what does the world say? Just compromise, just, just tone it down a little bit, just take it down a few notches, you spiritual weirdos. The people who didn't flinch are the spiritual weirdos who are looking. And the world is like, you know, you're inflexible, you're, 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 you're intolerant. And the labels fly and the accusations fly and it gets vitriolic but compromise is a bad thing when we compromise this to make the world happy I would rather be a fool in the eyes of men than a fool in the eyes of God I would rather make God happy with everything I do and offend everybody else and you should too now don't be arrogant do it in love be humble amen but don't compromise the church of Pergamos had, unfortunately, compromised in every way, spiritually, morally, and we're going to see doctrinally. They made concessions that offended God so that they could have peace with the world. They made concessions that offended God so they can enjoy the pleasures and the treasures of this world. And Jesus says, I got some things against you that you've decided to please your flesh and the world and yourself, and you've chosen to offend me. Now, check this out here. As Jesus speaks to this church again, he follows that pattern that I pointed out last time we were together, that he praises them, then he corrects them, then he kind of encourages them at the end. It's like a little sandwich. If you have to correct someone, if you have to bring up a delicate issue, if you have to confront someone about something, you need to have a talk with your spouse. Remember, praise them, uh, encourage them, tell them what they're doing great, amen, and then when you bring up that correction, all the married couples are riveted on me. They're like. <laughs> yeah, and then when you're done correcting, praise them again. All right, some aren't buying what I'm selling here, but you gotta sleep next to them. Verse 13, Jesus says this, and it's powerful. I know your works, that's comforting, and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and that you hold fast to my name and didn't deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. So there was martyrdom there, uh, just like in the other church where that was the church of the martyrs, and they, they held on to the faith. So Jesus says, I know your works and where you live. There's something so powerful about Jesus saying, I know your works that he didn't just overlook everything that they did because they were, they were doing some good things. You know, they were keeping the faith and they were keeping his name and they were enduring persecution. And he's saying, I know that. So he acknowledges that and, that, and that's a good thing. But, you know, he, he also gets down to the nitty gritty here um, of saying that I, I know where you live. And that's an interesting thing. Apparently where Pergamos was, the spiritual climate there was dark and volatile and Jesus acknowledges it. Listen, when Jesus says you live where Satan's throne is, you know you're in a bad neighborhood you know anybody come from a bad neighborhood there's some places we go down to visit in the city and you go in Manhattan go down to the Bronx where where I was born and stuff and it's like you look there and you're like man this is bad but I've never looked at it and go this is where Satan lives 
Remember that time we were doing ministry in Harlem and that guy, he was a musician on the street. His name was Satan. He was playing. Yeah, he welcomed us to Harlem. He said, welcome to Harlem. He, he could tell we were visitors. <laughs> He's playing out there. I've never been to a place where I'm like, yeah, this is where the devil lives. Jesus is like, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. You see, apparently, uh, Pergamos was the epicenter of pagan idolatry. The people were there were actually called the temple keepers of Asia. There were multiple temples of pagan worship there. They worshiped several gods like Zeus and Athena and Diosthenes and Asclepes. I can't even say these idols. I don't know know how you could worship them. But, you know, even the Roman emperors encouraged the people to worship worship the Roman emperors there. The Roman emperors were were said to be gods, and the Romans demanded that you worship them. And this all happened in Pergamos. So it's the epicenter of, you know, pagan worship there, and Jesus refers to it as where Satan's throne is, a bad neighborhood. Now, I want to say something. God takes into account the spiritual climate we're in and the spiritual opposition we face. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to look out there today and say things are getting hostile and volatile towards people who hold on to God's word and claim to be Christians. Come on, are you picking that up out there? If you're not, you're not living a, a, a Christian enough life to bring, draw any fire, so step up your game. But the truth is the world is hostile towards the gospel and in the West here more than ever before. People are saying we're a post-Christian nation. Have you heard that? Have you heard people say that? And you know what I say to them? That's not your judgment to make. That's not your call to make. God's not done with us yet. God's not done with the church yet. It's up to him. But understand that, you know, they were in a rough place and they had a rough climate and God acknowledges. But I want to say this. We're in a rough place and we have a rough climate. But that doesn't, you know, and while God acknowledges that, that doesn't, you know, mean that we don't have to be the light in the darkness, that we shouldn't be those who are, you know, be making disciples and preaching the gospel. Because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Amen. The darker it gets, the more your light pierces the darkness. Amen. Don't be afraid of the dark. Any of you, grown-up adults, still afraid of the dark? Sleep with the nightlight on? No, don't be afraid of the dark. Jesus overcame the darkness. He's got the light, amen. He said, in this world you'll have trouble, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So let your light shine. Preach the gospel. Make disciples. Be kind to people. Love people. And and just encourage people. Be a light out there, amen? Yeah, it's a rough neighborhood. Yeah, it's a rough spiritual climate. But God knows and he's aware. Now, this didn't stop them from doing the good works and maintaining their faith and holding on to Jesus. They endured persecution. So he commends them for that. Now, there again, uh, we get to the middle of the sandwich here where he tells them what he's got against them. Verse 14 and 15. But I have a few things against you because you have those, listen, because you have those there who hold to the doctrine of Balaam. Let me say one thing. This little statement here and the way Jesus says it, we need, to, we need to unravel that a little bit so we understand. He's not saying all of you did it. He's saying you have some of you there who have done this. And here was the sin of all of the church. You guys have tolerated what they've done and you haven't rooted it out and you haven't called it out. You just kind of went along with it. 
So get this. Jesus is calling out some of them there who hold on to these errors here that we're going to look at. And uh, he says, not all of you. He says, because you have, they're those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. Listen, to eat things sacrificed to idols. That's not Chick-fil-A. Take it easy. (laughs) And to commit sexual immorality. Verse 15. Thus you have those Again, not everybody, some of them, who hold to the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. So he's calling them out for what they've tolerated in their midst. You know, it's easy for us as Christians to say, well, I don't believe that or I don't do that. But have we tolerated it? Have we tolerated it within our ranks? Have we called it out as sin? Look, you can call out sin and still love the sinner. But if you don't call out sin, then sin abounds. And a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Come on, hear, hear church this morning. Hear it. Now, in verse 14 through 16, what Jesus has against them are actually two false doctrines. And these doctrines uh, caused them to compromise spiritually so that their consecration to him was, was wounded. Now, understand, doctrine is important. Let me try this side over here. Doctrine is important. Amen? What we believe about the word of God. Oh, well, I don't read the Bible. I just let the pastor read it for me, and he'll tell me what to think. Don't do that. You need to know the basic doctrines. You need to know the foundational doctrines. You need to know, amen, chapter and verse on certain things. You're like, oh, it's too much work. Listen, we got a, we got a lot of time that we waste that we could learn the basic doctrines of Christianity. I've preached through them dozens of times. Maybe we'll do it again, but we need to know the basics of the faith. You say, why do we need to know? So that when there's a wrong doctrine that's introduced and they're peddling them out there, we don't get deceived by it and sucked into it. When we don't know the truth and we don't know, you know, what the Bible says, it's amazing what we can believe. Do you ever look for something in Scripture that wasn't there? God helps those who help themselves. I can't find, I can't find it. It's not there. People say stuff and they say it in church, and it was in the Bible. It's not there. So we got to know what the Bible says. we got to know the doctrines. Why? Because these false doctrines had compromised the church to the point where Jesus is offended with them, and if they don't repent, they're going to be in trouble. Now, let's look at the doctrines here, because we talk about the doctrine of Balaam. We talk about the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, and we're, right away, those things don't necessarily mean something to us, so we got to dig in. And here's where the first issue. It's the doctrine of Balaam. Now, Balaam was an Old Testament prophet, and Balaam got a approached by a guy named Balak who wanted to hire Balaam to curse Israel prophetically, to speak curses upon them. And he agreed to curse Israel for Balak for money. Remember, understand this. Here's a prophet of Israel, and he's got the anointing of God. He speaks the oracles of God, and yet he's willing to take money to use his gift to curse Israel so he can make some cash. Now you're going to say, oh, I knew it. It was money. You know, we were not supposed to have any. No, it's the love of money. It's the misuse of spiritual gifts. There's a lot of moving parts here. We're going to dig in. But Balaam was willing to curse Israel to make some cash, 
to prostitute his spiritual gift. And there's so many Christians who have gifts and they, they're gifted by God and the giftings and callings of God are without repentance. So even if we misuse our gift, God doesn't take it away. Did you notice that? Well, why didn't he just shut that prophet down? Why didn't he just strike him dead? We're gonna see he deals with him a certain way, but understand we've got gifts and if we misuse them to fill our pockets or to make friendships with the world or to make ourselves more likable and more profitable, it's a misuse of spiritual things and it's offensive to God. Now here's Balaam and he's like, yeah, man, I'll take the money. What's, what's the job pay? And then he's like, all right. So he goes to curse Israel and every time he opens his mouth, he can't curse him, only blessings come out. Balak's like, all right, man, let it go. He's like, here it comes. And, and he opens his mouth and uh, the Lord says Israel will be blessed with the fatness of the grape from the going down to the, oh man. <laughs> try again, try again. And the Lord blesses Israel and he couldn't do it. He can, and he's like, I can't do it. I can only speak blessings over Israel. You know, so the gift, God had some control over the gift, some control over the anointing and uh, he couldn't do it. Now watch this. This is very important. But Balaam still wanted the money for the job. And even though he couldn't curse Israel with his own mouth, what he did was he taught Balak how to get God to curse Israel. And this is what he did. He said, let them commit, encourage them to commit sexual immorality and idolatry with the Moabite women. Get the sons of Israel to go and, and, and go into their temples and worship their idols and have sex with their women and God himself will have to curse them because that's a violation of what he's told them to do. So Balak effectuated that and the, the sons of Israel did it and God had to judge them and, and, and judgment broke out upon Israel and you know what? He got paid for the job and he found a backdoor way to do it. Wow. What a prophet, huh? So there's a lot of moving parts here. What is the doctrine of Balaam? It's a willingness to compromise our spirituality and morality for financial gain. It's a willingness to use our gifts to become a friend of the world for financial gain and for pleasure. Notice, it was, they were drawn away and enticed by these women and sexual immorality, and they worshiped in their temples. Look what it says, eating food sacrificed to idols. Do you realize when as a Christian you give yourself over to sin and, and you're, you're immersed in the, the, the sinfulness of the culture and stuff that it's actually idolatry for us? Wow. The doctrine of Balaam, a willingness to use our spiritual gifts for profit, a willingness to compromise our morality for financial gain or pleasure. Jesus had a problem with it because they were doing it and he wanted them to repent. Number two, the second issue Jesus had with them was the practice of the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, as we dig into this one, the, the text doesn't give us much insight here. We study scripture and understand what this doctrine is, but the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is from that word Nicolaitan. It's a compound Greek word. The first part, Nick, is from Nike, which we all know. Nike, you got your little swoosh there, just do it, you know? Like you're going to go to the buffet after church and just do it. <laughs> plate after plate, Johnny, right? We're going to hurt them, put them out of business. Nike, victory, and that word laetos, which means laity. The word Nicolaitans literally means victory over the laity. And this is, the practice of this fleshes itself out in church systems where they have a system of priests or pastors or leaders or elders who separate the people from God. 
and they say, you know, we go to God for you. You don't go to God. We stand between you and God. You don't read the Bible. We'll read it for you, and we'll tell you what it means. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. You, you don't approach God and have a relationship with him. We'll do that for you, and we'll, we'll hand feed you. You don't ask God for forgiveness. You ask us for forgiveness, and we broker forgiveness with God for you. You don't need a personal relationship with Jesus. You just go through a ceremony. You just go through a sacrament. You just go through the motions, but we'll connect you to God. Now, if you can't tell that there are church systems in operation in the world today like that, then you're not paying attention very close. But there's whole entire portions of Christianity that call themselves the church that say, oh, no, the laity has no connection to God, the priesthood, the, the pastors, the elders. And it's not just a Catholic thing. It happens in uh, Protestant churches. It happens in all denominations when the pastor becomes the only fountain of everything that has to do with God. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans, Jesus says, I hate it. I hate it. That's a strong word. Some of you won't say, I won't say hate. Well, Jesus does. We don't say hate in our house. Well, Jesus said it. He hates the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. I can't even say it. The Nicolaitans. He hates it. Why does he hate it? Because it separates the people from him. Jesus died on the cross. He said, it is finished. And in the, in the temple, the veil was torn in two that now we could enter into the presence of God and have a relationship with God. And God says, I, I, I've always wanted a relationship with pe my people. I've always wanted to know them. And then some man stands between you and said, no, you can't go to God. I'll go for you. Jesus says, I hate that. So these two doctrines here were an offense to Christ and he calls them out for them. And it's not everyone in Pergamos, but it's enough of them. And they're still practicing it. And the other ones haven't called them out on it and rooted it out. So he tells them, all of you need to repent. Jesus' remedy for tolerating those who practice these wicked doctrines within their ranks was repent or else. Repent or else I will come quickly and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Do you hear this? Jesus is the word of God. What is he going to do? How does he fight against false doctrine with the word of God, with the sword of his mouth? How do you correct false doctrine with the word of God? Amen. Every doctrine that doesn't line up with what scripture says is a false doctrine. And this is what we correct it with. And when there's false doctrines and false teachings and people saying X, Y, and Z, we need to go to the word. We need to hear what the word says. And then if they're in error, we need to correct them in love. And if they're within our ranks, we need to correct them in love because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And we can't tolerate false doctrine and sin within our ranks. So repent or else. It's serious. In verse 17, Jesus encourages them to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Are we hearing what the Holy Spirit is saying to us today? You say, well, how do these doctrines apply to us? If we have gifts that we're using in the world to produce wealth for ourselves, but we're not using them in the kingdom of God, if we have these things that we have compromised our morality to be in situations with people where things can get lucrative and, and we've just toned down the Christian thing, we need to repent. Where we've let other people go into the presence of God and, 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 and get the word and get the encouragement and we've eaten from their labor. Listen, I can't, I can't feed you everything Jesus wants to give to you. You need to have a relationship with him yourself, amen. 
Churches that please the Lord don't have two classes of people. The, the, the leadership there prepares you for works of service and releases you to use your gifts. Amen. I don't want to suppress you. I want to turn you loose. I want you to use your gifts for God. Amen. But listen, there's plenty of churches where, you know, just a few people do all the work. Just a few people do all the study. And just a few people, you know, and everybody's, ah, I'm not going to read the word. I'm not going to pray. There'll be something good for me on Sunday. There'll be something on Wednesday. The worship team will play my favorite song, and that'll last all week. We do this stuff, and where we do, we need to repent. And notice in verse 17, he encourages them again. Remember that pattern? You know, it's, it's encouraged, correct, encouraged. He says here in verse 17, if you have an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit says to the church. He's trying to point out where we need to repent. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. Well, I don't know what that is, but I want some. And I, give, I will give him a white stone and a, new, and a stone with a new name written on it, which no one knows except him who receives it. So gifts from the Lord, unique personal gifts from the Lord uh, for those who overcome, for those who keep the faith, for those who repent. And there again, it's that encouragement again that, you know, yeah, we need to straighten some things out and we need to repent of these doctrines and thank God that, you know, don't ever attend a church that practices these things. If you move here, look, everybody moves from New York. Escape from New Yorkistan, I know it. But when you leave, you find a church that teaches the word, that doesn't practice these doctrines we talked about, where there's no immorality and there's no compromise and there's no, you know, there's no separating the classes of people. Listen, you find a good church to worship at, amen, because these doctrines will, will bring about the judgment of God. And... God wants us to have a relationship with him. God wants us to use our gifts for him, for him to be number one. God wants us to drive all compromise out of our lives so that we can be completely his. Let's just take a moment to bow our heads and to let the Holy Spirit just probe our hearts where we've used the gifts that God has given us or, and we've misused them or we, we haven't activated our gifts and used them in the church and we're, we're just all about making money and we're willing to compromise to be loved by the world and enjoy the pleasures of the world. But there's Moabite women. They attracted the men of Israel and they brought the judgment of God on the whole entire nation. God, help us where we've given ourselves license to compromise and immorality where we live together and our young people don't get married anymore and they just fornicate and we, we tolerate these things. But God, help us to come back to purity so that you can pour your blessing out upon us again. Let's just take a moment in God's presence. Father, where there's any compromise in us, we confess it today. 
we repent, change our mind, change our thoughts, change our heart. Let us turn around and go in the opposite direction, away from these things and to you. Father, where we've been willing to compromise our morality to get the pleasures and the treasures of the world, we repent, Lord, and ask forgiveness today. Where we have used our gifts to fill our pockets but not to enhance the body of Christ, we we ask you to forgive us and we repent today. Where we've allowed others to do the spiritual hard work and been too lazy to develop a relationship with you ourselves, we repent today. Pray that there would be nothing between us and you. No man, no denomination, no leader. One mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. Grant us the gift of repentance today. Activate our gifts and focus us as we're in these last days that we would be useful in bringing in the harvest. The harvest is plentiful, God. 